Hello and welcome to the 152nd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday the 26th of February 2021 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week I'm delighted to welcome Chris Knight to the show to perform a friendly critique of the anthropological work of David Graeber who recently passed away suddenly. Chris is a senior research fellow in the Department of Anthropology in University College London and the author of several books. This week, I have the new patrons William Smith and Sean Phipps to thank. If you'd like to help keep the lights on and the episodes flowing, why not head on over to Patreon, where for $5 a month, where you can find a heap of bonus episodes and live streams and get access to the Emancipation Network Discord server where there's some damn lively discussion on everything from theory to commie gossip. Okay, let's join the interview. It really kind of made me understand a bit more where he would position himself close to, like, MMT and post-Keynesians, as opposed to Marxists. Yeah, he always would hang around with, you know, Steve Keen types and people like that, which I, I was always quite confused about his politics well i mean i'm i'm an anthropologist and um, i derive my politics from my understanding that we became human in a revolution that becoming human was a revolutionary process as well as a, a, an evolutionary one and i didn't commit myself to the revolution until i kind of understood what the revolution meant so although i was you know i was hanging around my Trotskyists and uh, other revolutionary friends at, at college back in the 60s, I never quite, I wasn't, I was quite reluctant to sort of commit to the revolutionary program out of, you know, the usual concerns about what happens to revolutions, with, especially the Russian revolution with, with Stalin and stuff. So I, I, when, I, when I finally found I could commit to the revolution, it was because I'd sort of worked out, at least to my own satisfaction, that this was, the human revolution this was the uh, uh, you know not sort of an event in one state or country or one some tinkering around with legislation or something this was a repeat of the revolution through which we became human and and learned to speak to one another and share our dreams and and all that stuff so i'm just saying that kind of yeah i mean all of us when we have a theory or a commitment it's sort of an intellectual commitment no mostly it connects up with our political commitment yeah so i'm just saying I, you know, I, I, I can only speak confidently, really, about the anthropology of Graeber and where it leads to politically. I'm, I'm, like what I'm saying is, I suppose, I never independently followed his political trajectory. I wasn't too interested in that. I was mostly interested in his anthropology. So, Chris, when you say the human revolution with respect to anthropology, what are you getting at? Well, it's a term within mainstream archaeology which is that we humans are a species of hominin, quite closely related to chimpanzees and bonobos. But during the course of our evolution, something very strange began to happen. Our brain size started to expand sort of more, almost exponentially from beginning about two million years ago, but really, really accelerating a huge amount from about half a million years ago. And things started to happen, which were so odd in terms of what normally happens with biological evolution so rapid and so spectacular and things began to happen like the emergence of art and ritual and of course language which is 
right off the chart. I mean, as a, as a system of communication, nothing like words and grammar exists anywhere else in nature, as, as Noam Chomsky would, you know, would tell you. Um, something quite remarkable began to happen, and it's logical to call that a revolution. I mean, humans are a species born in a kind of revolution. I mean, there are lots of arguments about whether it was just a kind of cognitive revolution or a technological revolution or a social or political revolution. But my own view, and it's my, it's my area of, you know, my specialist area, is that it was all of those. It was it was, a, it was a revolution in every sense, and it established something quite unusual for, for, for an ape. Most chimpanzees are extremely despotic in their social arrangements. You get alpha males extremely violent towards females. Uh, females, you know, get harassed and raped, including, you know, by their brothers. Where the female chimpanzees, on, on reaching maturity, they mostly need to get out of the way and move somewhere else where they don't have, have any relatives, because otherwise their relatives, will be, their male relatives, will be real pain. Whereas early humans, if, we, if extant hunters and gatherers are anything to go by, were essentially communistic and egalitarian. And that's an, that's an astonishing thing to say. I mean, there's, there's nothing communist about chimpanzees in the wild. And yet early humans seem to have been very much egalitarian, including gender egalitarian, from everything we know about extant hunter-gatherers, especially in Africa, where, where you don't practice storage. So uh, becoming human involved turning the world upside down, overthrowing the logic of dominance and competition, uh, which is, is a feature of most monkey and ape social life. Uh, how does that interact with, say, the development of the bonobo? Well, that's a very good question because the, the, the bonobo example <laughs> makes it very clear that the, the, the dominance of chimpanzees has nothing to do with their ge genetics, really. So it's perfectly possible to have chimpanzees who, in, the, in this particular case, that what happened was that about a million years ago, chimpanzees, probably much like today's chimpanzees, during a period of, of dry, managed to cross the Congo River to the south and found an absolute paradise in terms of enormous, lush, rich, rich semi-aquatic resources. And, and that meant that the females could travel together, foraging together. They didn't have to disperse because there's plenty of food around. And that meant that the females could, in the course of bonding with each other and forming alliances, they could beat up any male that interfered with them or try to, you know, try to snatch their food the way common chimps would. So, so bonobos are essentially matriarchal. And if anything, it's even more surprising. With bonobos, it's almost the infants who rule the roost. And, and that's because um, no, no big male wants to get on the wrong side of a of an infant because <laughs> mum will be watching and then a whole bunch of females will jump on him. So the males are dominant. The males aren't, can't be can't be dominant at all. And if anything, it's the young who, if there, if there is a, any section of society which is dominant, it's the young. Now that's not what humans did. We didn't move in, in quite that way, and we but we did have a sort of matriarchy. So which which my colleague Morna Finnegan terms communism in motion, which means that you have a, a, a ritual structure. With all religions, if you go back far enough, you'll find they're linked to the moon, essentially. That's maybe the sun as well, but mostly the moon. I mean, what we know from, from hunter-gatherers today in Africa, particularly the, the people that Mourner studies, the Benjeli Congo forest people, the, the females will bond together uh, in a very raucous, sexy, assertive uh, invasion of the, of, the, of the camp's space and, and establish a, a temporary kind of rule of women 
And having made their point for a few days and taunted the men and made, made kind of rude remarks about their sexual anatomy and all kinds of adult humor at, at male expense, the, the women will now feel, okay, we made our point. And let them, you know, the kind of thing is getting a bit boring now running, running this, you know, the camp. Let's let, give the men a chance. But that's only because once you've let the sort of male counter-revolution happen for a period, it, it gives you the, 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 the joy of um, overthrowing the system once again. And they sort of have a monthly, roughly monthly insurrection against male power. But it's, it's all playful and it's all based on laughter as a leavening device. And so whereas, whereas the bonobos are permanently matriarchal, it looks as if our hominin ancestors had a kind of the best of all worlds, having a bit of matriarchy, a bit of patriarchy, every, what Mona calls a pendulum of power between the two genders. And that still goes on today. Okay, so this seems like quite an abstract start for us here, talking about the politics or the anthropology of David Graeber. So, like a kind of a, I consider this a, a friendly critique as somebody who has read a bit of David Graeber, but I absolutely would not consider myself in any sense a expert or even, you know, an amateur in anthropology. So how do you juxtapose then this kind of idea of where humans came from with, say, the work of David Graeber? Well, this is um, David's book, um, Debt, the first 5,000 years, which, of course, made him a, a celebrity. And he has been called the Elvis of anthropology in the sense that he managed to make <laughs> make uh, anthropology sexy and became a celebrity in the process. And uh, okay, and so here is David in a passage on in the book Debt, several pages on communism, and he says, uh, "I will define communism as any human relationship that operates on the principle of." from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. And so he's saying really that communism is all over the place because in any family, in any face-to-face interaction with anyone there, with their friends, you might be you might be a plumber with your mate and you might say, you know, hand me the wrench. And you don't expect your mate, your, the mate to sort of say, well, what's in it for me? You know, your, your, your mates, your, your, co- your cooperating and you just you, you know you 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 meet people's needs in in insofar as you have the ability which and he calls that communism and he says communism's everywhere but he also says don't imagine it's possible to have a communist society because the state is everywhere as well um so he says that just as communism is everywhere and it comes naturally to all of us we just feel instinctively we, we're kind of communist if somebody asks you for a cigarette or for directions or something you'll, obviously you'll just think well you know you you, you gain some pleasure in helping because then you feel, you know, you're, use, you're useful and you, and you, you might, as, as Karl Marx said, if you're human and social, you will gain enjoyment from providing enjoyment for others, as we do, of course, in sex and so many other things. But he says, and I'm going to quote here, our thinking about communism has been dominated by a myth. Okay, and by, by the myth, he means the theory, which, by the way, I have, <laughs> that we were once communists. That in other words, that, we're, that it's called primitive communism, of course. And he says, our thinking about communism has been dominated by a myth. Once upon a time, and here David begins to sort of take the piss out of people like me. Once upon a time, humans held all things in common in the Garden of Eden during the golden age of Saturn in Paleolithic hunter-gatherer bands. 
Then came the fall, as a result of which we are now cursed with divisions of power and private property. The dream was that someday, with the advance of technology and general prosperity, with social revolution, or with the guidance of the party, spoke with a capital P, we would finally be in a position to put things back, to restore common ownership and common management of collective resources. Throughout the last two centuries, communists and anti-communists argued over how plausible this picture was and whether it would be a blessing or a nightmare, but they all agreed on the basic framework. Communism was about collective property. Primitive communism did once exist. We might call this mythic communism or even epic communism, a story we like to tell ourselves. Since the days of the French Revolution, it has inspired millions, but it has also done enormous damage to humanity. It's high time, I think, to brush the entire argument uh, aside. So David is saying communism, and you can sort of see um, a, a positive component of this. He says, don't relegate communism to a mythic past or to a mythic utopian future. Communism is all over the place. It always was and it always will be. Capitalism depends on communism. If we all just ask, if we all said, what's in it for me every time any interaction happened, capitalism wouldn't be able to pay for all, all those things we do spontaneously in caring for each other, for our neighbours, for our family, for our mates, and getting on with each other. So he says, capitalism is parasitic on the prior existence of communism. But along with that, he says that don't, don't even dream about a communist society because any, any real social system will be pluralist. There'll be elements of capitalism, elements of competition, elements of the state. He, he points out, for example, that language, all languages, they have the imperative form, which means the form where you instruct somebody to do something. Give me this, give me that, do this, do that. Imperative. He says, well, you know, what is the state except some people telling others what to do? And he says, well, in any society, there'll be times when you need to tell somebody what to do, like your mum saying to them, you know, kids sort of, you know, go and get the milk that's on the doorstep, whatever, you know. <laughs> and so he says, communism is everywhere and always will be and always was. Competition and conflict is everywhere and always was and always will be. And the state, the, the sort of principle behind the state, the principle of telling people to do and then punishing them if they don't do. And he said, that's all the state is. It's just one, one bunch of people telling others what to do. And if they don't do it, you punish them. So he's sort of saying, that let's not worry about revolution. Let's not try to have a social system based on any one principle. Let's just try to find more enclaves uh, of communism within uh, a system which is bound to be imperfect. So there will always be the state, but it might be a weak state. And if it's a weak state, a ramshackle state, a state which is all falling, a bit, falling to bits, as, as, by the way, he found when he went and did his fieldwork in, in Madagascar, so much the better. We can then kind of establish sort of elements of, of communism, elements of liberation within a, a, an imperfect overall social system. So give up the whole program of a revolution. It, it's unrealistic. So that's it's quite a theory to say because there was the imperative in in language, in all languages, that therefore there has always been the existence of a state or an equivalent in all times. You would think that it is both a gross oversimplification of what the state is, you know, and also I would like to hear your critique of the anthropology that would back up such a understanding of state in early human societies. 
Well, yes, I mean, this is his book uh, on kings, written with uh, Marshall Sardins, and it's on page 456. All human languages we know of have imperative forms, and in any society, there will be situations where it's considered appropriate for some individuals to tell others what to do. And then he goes on to say, you can't really talk about the origins of the state because it's always been there. So he says that uh, one could probably make a case that in any complex human society, there are likely to be some circumstances in which some people can issue arbitrary commands. And then he goes on to sort of say that the idea that you could, well, okay, okay he says, he sometimes used the words the state and its principle, and he sometimes used the word sovereignty and its principle. And he says that um, because kings have sovereignty, but maybe, I don't know, some, some other thing like parliament has sovereignty, but it's still the state. And he says, as I have said, the principle of sovereignty is still with us. Once it becomes the organizing principle of social life anywhere, it tends to prove extraordinarily difficult to uproot. Few at this point seem to be able to imagine what it would mean to uproot it. And so we have this paradox of an anarchist who accepts the inevitability of the state and casts doubt on the very idea that we can possibly uproot it. So just to respond to your question, among the Benjeli, the people that I, I, I know a little bit about, the Hadza hunters and gatherers in Tanzania, having stayed with them for a bit, but my, many of my friends have done long-term fieldwork uh, in Africa, and in particular, long-term fieldwork with a, a, a group of um, forest hunters and gatherers called the Benjeli, or the Bayaka. So, and, and they're traditionally been called um, pygmies with a capital P. They're slightly smaller statue than other people, simply because if you live in the forest, you, you know, you don't want to have to keep stooping to avoid hitting a branch. So they're, they're a little bit smaller than some people. Like Ethiopians, for example, are a lot taller. Anyway, so they, they, and anyway, these people, the, the Benjeli, they are, I mean, just inspiringly, wonderfully egalitarian. Anyone that's lived with them just wants to stay there because there's a huge amount of laughter and fun and very little work going on because, you, you know, it's just an absolute economy of superabundance, really, with, with the animals you hunt and the honey and, and all the, you know, the fruit and stuff. And, and laughter is the main levelling device. So any, any man, it's often a man who tries to sort of get above himself, throw his weight around, what will happen is that uh, it's called it's called Mojo. A, a bunch of older ladies will start to imitate this guy's foolishness, and soon they're all laughing. And before long, they got all the all the younger women are beginning to laugh and laugh and laugh. And what then they do they do this um, pantomime ridicule of the behaviour and idiosyncrasies of this particular guy until the whole camp is laughing and they carry on laughing mercilessly. Into, and and you, and what happens is there's only one person in the camp who's not laughing. So guess who? <laughs> it's, it's the butt of all these jokes. And the women just will continue to laugh until finally he joins the human race and sees the idiocy of his own behavior, sees himself as others see him. And that's called reflexivity or egocentric perspective reversal. And when he laughs at his own former self, everyone thinks, OK, now you've got it. You've seen what an idiot you've been. So this form of leveling laughter is what maintains the gender egalitarianism of the society. But the other thing to say, again, in response to your question, is that Nobody would dream of telling anybody else what to do. It just does not happen. Nobody tells somebody what to do. A mother wouldn't, wouldn't tell her children what to do. Advice is given through, through play, through encouragement. But the idea that some people have got the right of command over others 
isn't present. And although the language they speak have probably got the imperative because it's it's actually uh, it's it's not it's not an indigenous hunter gatherer language. Graeber's idea that the imperative is that the linguistic imperative somehow means that you're you're going to get you know dominance and submission and, and some people with a right to tell others what to do. It's just uh, it's just wrong. But and I, but I should put that in a wider framework. The thing about David is that he um, categorically refused to even refer to hunter-gatherer ethnography. So anybody who'd spent their lives studying hunter-gatherers, it's a bit odd. I, I, the only way I can explain it is, is to go to some length, you know, discussing his own fieldwork. But um, he, he didn't. He dismissed completely. Although we were great friends and we we, we got on fine, we, we often met in you know, various <laughs> actions. Any kind of picket line, any kind of occupation of a bridge for Extinction Rebellion or whatever it was, or any you know massive, huge uprisings, kind of in central London over during the, the, the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. You know when when. David and I were sort of in the, on the same action. We would always gravitate towards each other and, and have a good chat. But the one thing we avoided was anthropology. Because uh, <laughs> I, I now know, since he died, that uh, he just told his, his friends, Chris makes everything up. You know, he just makes it up as he goes along. And, what, and he didn't just dismiss... I mean, my, my work, you'll find in, in, in Grave, it just does not appear, it does not exist. But not just my work... Even though you know, I, I you know, I'm quite a well-known specialist in human origins research, but not just mine, but all the other anthropologists who've made hunting and gathering their sort of specialism. I mean, for, for example, uh, Richard Lee, he's he's written a great length on primitive communism among the Kalahari Bushmen. His work doesn't figure for for David, but Alan Barnard and James Woodburn. I mean, I, I won't mention names; they won't mean much to your listeners. <laughs> but these are the giants of uh, hunter-gatherer research and they just don't exist for david he just just uh, uh, it's not conscious censorship but it's just it's just written we're all written out of history when he when he says that there's no such thing as primitive communism he he says that on the basis of cutting out the evidence for primitive communism if you want to call it primitive communism i prefer i prefer Morna finnegan's term communism in motion that captures it much better because the word primitive isn't too good but even the word, even the idea that you have a stable thing called communism, isn't too realistic because actually these hunter gatherers, they enjoy establishing a kind of matriarchal egalitarianism, but they also enjoy letting it all collapse so that they can re-establish it, so that anybody that starts getting above themselves can be pulled down again, in a in a rhythm. So the communism or the revolution is endlessly repeated and lost, repeated and lost in a in a rhythmic way. So that's what Mona means by communism in motion. You don't just sit back and think, "Oh, we've got communism." You need to constantly lose it in re- in order to regain it. Yeah, so I think it's in that book on kings, where he describes the say more basic say structured societies as living in fear of a god, that the god acts like a state. I was wondering if you could talk about that with respect to these societies and hunter-gatherer societies. Thank you for asking that question. I mean, when I read in this book, Kings, that you can't have an egalitarian society because even with hunters and gatherers, they've got kings. I just thought, what are you talking about, David? I mean, really? Because he says that. I mean, so... All hunters and gatherers have a, have 
um, notions of potencies. For example, the game animals may very often have a guardian of the game animals. You've got to be quite careful when you go hunting that you respect the blood of the animals you're hunting because the guardian of the game animals may punish you if, you, if you're abusive. It could be the mistress of the game animals. And it certainly looks as if the cave paintings of, of, of Europe, of Ice Age Europe, those great bison and horse and other animals, including you know mastodons and stuff, <laughs> those are images of the immortal game animals, the immortal aspect, the spirits, the guardian spirits of the of the animals. They're not they're not just prosaic ordinary animals. They're sort of magical ones. So okay, in that sense, you can say hunter gatherers have religion. I don't quite like the word religion because it, it smacks of the idea of God. Well, they certainly have magic, and they certainly have magic in their lives, and they have these magical beliefs in in all kinds of potencies. As, as soon as you examine those things, you realize actually that that's in no sense irrational. Those beliefs make a damn lot of <laughs> really materialistic sense. It makes a lot of sense to not abuse or laugh at the spirits of the animals. It makes because it, it, once once you start laughing at the blood of of game animals and, and, and sort of feeling triumphalist about it, who knows where, given that humans evolved with, we, call, we talk about man, the toolmaker, let's not forget those tools weren't just like uh, sort of hammers and saws and planes and gradles. <laughs> they were weapons of mass destruction. So unless there's a lot of social control over the shedding of blood, including the shed of, shedding of animal blood, you're in trouble. You know, if men can just like shed blood and, get, and make a profit out of it, make a, a personal gain out of it, you don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, and we can get a good idea of where it might end up because even chimpanzees don't actually use weapons, uh, but they can do a lot of damage to each other uh, without using artificial weapons. Chimpanzees are notorious for if they invade a, a neighboring territory, finding some female or male, and a whole bunch of chimps will stamp on them until they're a sort of they're a layer of a layer of sort of centimeter thick flesh and bone and blood and muscle. On the ground i mean they, they really do a lot of damage so okay so now what Graeber says is that these spirits forest spirits if you want to call them that they're like kings they're, they're, it's like and he actually says hunter gatherers have kings and he said what do you mean by kings he said well you know a, a, a king just think of a king you know medieval king or i don't know some king what is he, he he's a he's a combination of a mortal being with a god so kings seem to have begun as divine kings. Any kind of kingship, it seems, come, is associated with the idea of, of divinity, of magical potency. Many of those early kings, of course, thought they could control the weather or it was believed that they could control the weather or control thunderstorms or all sorts of magical powers associated with kingship and sovereignty. So what David Graeber says, getting this idea, by the way, from his mentor, Marshall Salins, but he completely supported it and made it his own, is the idea that hunter-gatherers have kings uh, in the form of these gods, but never let the king, never let the god, if you like, come down from the sky and inhabit a, a mortal body. So they have kings, but they sort of keep them up in the air somewhere. But still, despite that, as I, I'm sure you, you, you read this from the book, despite that, there's no good saying they're not real. They're, 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 everyone believes in these kings, these gods, and therefore, and they have the power of life and death over humans, and therefore they can be terrifying and are terrifying. And therefore, humans, including hunters and gatherers, are cowering in fear of the king of the state in the form of these divine beings. So, I mean, what do we make of all that? <laughs> I mean, the the problem here is that 
David obviously hasn't read the, and it is absolutely astonishing, the, the kind of taboo on hunter-gatherer research. He hasn't read the first thing about these div- divinities of egalitarian hunters and gatherers. Now, most people probably, even if they haven't read a lot, have heard of the figure of the trickster. And the trickster is the version of divinity which hunter-gatherers have. And the trickster is a god who is an idiot, who you laugh at, who is the creator of the world, but he's also the he's also completely messes everything up. <laughs> and the thing about the trickster is that you he 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 moves between life and death, male and female, animal and human, creativity and an absurd mischief. And he's a laugh. Now, hunters and gatherers laugh at their gods. They laugh at them. They're egalitarians. They don't they don't stand on ceremony. They don't they don't accept anyone's sort of authority over them. And um, when if if hunter gatherers are laughing at the, I mean Jerome Lewis, my colleague at the UCL here, he he, he says we part, you know he, he's he's kind of an an initiated member of the of the Benjeli community. He says we we party with our gods, you know we we, we laugh with them, play with them, laugh, you know party with them. They're, you know, the, the idea that they're a king is absolutely foolish. It's just ridiculous. And so, I don't know, it's, um, it's an astonishing thing. And, and of course, even, even apart from that, to, to kind of suggest that hunter-gatherers can't be egalitarian because they have religion. And religion is the state. And that's the argument, by the way. The idea is that any form of religion equals the state, equals state coercion. And because hunter, all humans have a religion of one form or another, which is kind of true, all humans have shared beliefs about things, which, I mean, under capitalism, we have a, we are a, a weird religion. I mean, we all, we all believe in this total hallucination. It's called money, and we all think money is real. Well, the money isn't real. As soon as you, it, it depends, you know, it, it depends on belief, just like any other thing, which, which any, anything which humans consider important and worth fighting over, a flag or something, will be, will, its value will be dependent on belief. But um, to, to argue that hunter-gatherers can't be egalitarian or communist because they have beliefs, shared beliefs, they have religion, I don't know, it is astonishing. It is really astonishing. And the, the sort of scale of, I don't know, what do you call it? I wouldn't want to call it ignorance exactly. I don't, I don't, I was, uh, David Graeber is the last person I want to call it ignorant. He's incredibly, wonderfully, excitingly erudite. There's just a huge blockage around hunters and gatherers. And, and also, I have to say, around the whole topic of evolution. He won't discuss uh, human evolution origins in Africa, won't, certainly won't discuss you know, primate evolution, never, never goes anywhere near genetics, actually is quite, I wouldn't say hostile to science, that's putting it too strong, but he, he refuses to invoke science. And I could go into why. And there are quite good reasons not to invoke science. I can see why the idea that science is some kind of authority and you can just, you know, harness it to your prejudices is is unpleasant. But he won't use the resources of modern genetics and other forms of scientific knowledge around the evolution of our species. He won't go there at all. And so for him, origins means sort of things we're familiar with, means history. And it all kinds of starts in, in, in Europe with the Upper Paleolithic. And any kind of evolutionary framework is um, is kind of anathema, actually. I mean, it's a real hostility by on the part of um, David and his colleagues, real hostility to Darwinism, for example. I mean, he recommends that we we don't we just forget Darwin and, and go instead to Kropotkin, which is nice. I like the idea of mutual aid, but um, you know, <laughs> the idea that uh, 
nature is all about mutual aid. I mean, in an age of coronavirus, that little virus is not trying to help us. I can tell you that now. It's uh, trying to replicate itself. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it was trying to take out Boris Johnson. <laughs> so I, I remember seeing a documentary on the BBC a few years ago. It was kind of an anthropological one. I think it was from the 70s about, you might know of it, called about the Baku people, I think, in I think in Cameroon. They were yeah. like a forest dwelling. They actually did a, a 20 year or 30 year catch up, which was extraordinarily depressing. It was the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. But they seem to be living the kind of, I don't know if they were hunter gatherers or slightly agricultural, but living in the forest. But they had, a, I remember they had this ritual where they would, the men would go out of the camp and they had face masks, kind of like big scary faces. And they would come back into the children and they would perform some kind of ritual, you know, frightening the kids. You know, everybody in the place, all the adults, I'd say all kids over by the age of eight knew who the guys were with the masks on. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was no sense in which these gods or whatever, they were coming down the spirits to frighten them or whatever. There was no sense in really which any adult was afraid in any sense. It seemed much more like pantomime or a, a way to teach kids a certain moral I, I i don't know if i have the analysis correct or whatever but it would seem very far away to me from the fact that the adults were terrified that this was a state or someone who could tell them what to do it seemed much more like pantomime yes with the ben jenny it's very similar they have a word masana and masana means play and they have no separate word for religion so children play, and it's called Masana. And the children's play is very much like the boys play, the girls play, and it's kind of a, the boys fight the girls, the girls fight the boys, and there's a kind of teasing sort of playful animosity between the two gender camps. But, but there's no word for religion or ritual, which isn't, isn't considered to be an adult version of ch children's play. But, of course, it's also true, isn't it, that when, you, when kids are playing a game in the playground, there's something serious about it. It's something sacred about the game. You, you know, you get very upset with the spoil sport that comes in and messes it all up. So while you're in the game, while you are playing, you have to sort of suspend disbelief. You have to sort of take for real the things that you're doing in what you've just called, quite correctly, in my view, a, a pantomime. So, um, so, and it's just, just the same with the, with the Benjeli. There'll be Ngoku, the women's ritual, and Ngoku is the spirit of the women. And, and then there's a Jengi, and that's the spirit of the men. And the Jenki takes a form, uh, a kind of um, a, a costume, really, of, of with raffia, and and it's and it's it's you you dance and shape with it, and and it's a symbol of male fertility. But and and of course it is true as well that in with hunter gatherers, where as young girls come of age, they go through a kind of initiation. In other words, first menstruation is quite significant. And the, the blood is considered magical and the, the girl is blessed by the moon when she starts to bleed. And also boys go through a kind of initiation. In their case, it, it rests on hunting and shedding blood in a different way from the way women shed blood as menstrual blood. But there's a link between the two kinds of blood. So although there's um, initiation is, is kind of an form of coercive instruction, you could, you could conceive it negatively in that way. The, the real important point to make is that it's not top down. It's actually bottom up. There's a real reason why women need to make sure that men respect them, that, that sex isn't a free-for-all, that there are rules around anything to do with sex. And so as boys and girls 
get intersex, they need to be made aware. And there might be a little bit, when the, when the kids are small, when they're young, you know, an element of sort of fear, a small element of fear. But, and exactly like you're saying, when you, you know, as you grow up, you, you realize the whole thing's a kind of game. But a certain amount of um, sort of res respect for this bottom-up upheaval, this collectivist upheaval to make everyone aware, I'll put it in a nutshell, really. The principle of this kind of religion, hunter-gatherer religion, is very simple to express. Some things are sacred and the body above all. And for, particularly for women, if the body is not sacred, if you can't say no and mean it, if no doesn't mean no when you need it to mean no, if, if, if the body is not sacred, nothing is sacred. And if nothing is sacred, that, that is a terrible situation for any, any community because you're going to be back into something like, you know, non-human primate. I mean, non-human primates, they cooperate, but they, there's a lot of competition as well. And there's no group level morality. If somebody's beating you up, there's no, you can't go to any kind of higher court. There's no, there's no recourse really. And, and the idea of justice and morality and so on, I mean, that's just not part of Darwinism. And we had to kind of get out of a Darwinian logic of social action into a, a distinctively human form with the with this fundamental principle that some things are sacred and that is a you know it's it's a i mean where do we find that principle i mean I, I, the way we look at it in in radical anthropology group our network is a familiar concept isn't it every time you go on a picket line you say do not cross a picket line some things are sacred you don't you don't you don't recommend that people say oh well it's only a rather small picket line or i think I, these people are rather weak i could probably beat them up <laughs> you don't cross a picket line. It's a fundamental sacred rule of the labor movement. And it's a little, and it's, uh, what I'm saying there is it's that rule, never cross a picket line. It's not top down. It's not imposed by trade union barons in the way maybe the right wing press would uh, suggest. It, anyone in, in the workplace, they don't have to be particularly political. They don't even have to be socialists, of course. They can be, and on a picket line, you don't want them to be, have to be socialists. You want everyone to join the picket line, irrespective of ethnicity, religion race, class, whatever it is, just join the picket line. Um, and people do, and people get it. And the, and the basic principle there is you don't cheat on your brothers and sisters. You don't gain the benefit of strike action while not paying the costs. So that's a, fun, that's a very good illustration. The picket line is a very good illustration of the kind of, if you like, religion or taboo that we should be familiar with in the labor movement. And of course, you know, as I said earlier, David was magnificent on the picket line. I mean, we, we've, we've had a lot of, in the last four or five years, because there have been so many strikes at universities, a lot of our lectures, including mine and, 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 and David's, have been on the picket line, for example, at University College London, where I work. So I'm just saying a taboo or a religious principle, the word religion doesn't appropriate to a picket line, but the, the idea that some things are sacred, don't cross a picket line, that can be bottom up. It does not have to be top down. Just getting back to you mentioned earlier about the trickster god, it kind of strikes me that, like, just thinking of like Norse mythology, you had Loki, who seemed quite a kind of joker kind of a god. Do, do we see that kind of a trickster god in religions kind of outside of hunter gatherer ones? Do we see remnants of the trickster god, say, in early agricultural societies before they become monotheistic and all that? There's no question. We, we certainly do. And an interesting take on all that is um, Matthias Gunther, one of the one of the best researchers, anthropologists, on uh, hunter-gatherer religion. He describes beautifully how 
when the missionaries arrived with the Southern African hunter-gatherers, the Bushman people, and with their story about Jesus, the hunter-gatherers said, oh, yeah, we know that fellow. Yeah, doesn't he, he, doesn't he die and come alive again? Doesn't he perform miracles? Oh, he's one of us. He's a, definitely a trickster. That, that Jesus, he had enough clever, that one. <laughs> That's good. So getting back to Graeber's research, why is it then do you think that his... Well, I don't know whether you want to call them a school or whatever, but like that circle of anthropologists he ran in, why would they exclude the research on hunter-gatherers? That's, that would seem to me like to be some of the most fundamentally important anthropological work you could do would be to, to look at stuff in that as close to prehistory as you could. Well, you're echoing my feelings and thoughts, of course. When I first heard um, David talk about communism, it was during the occupied London period when we were occupying my college. Uh, and was, of course, it was the same time as roughly the same time as the Arab Spring. And I just remember David with a huge attendance in one of the occupations at, at the University of London Union in a major, in a very big hall. And he, I just thought it was so brilliant because he's chose to talk about communism. And he, he and he he explained with in such a eloquent way, with so much interchange and laughter from them, from all of us, how communism is just the way we live. If we if we get a chance, nobody, everyone needs to laugh. You can't laugh with your boss. You can't laugh with your subordinate. Laughter is a is a you know a necessary medicine, and we we always gravitate towards people we can laugh with, and they will be our. Are equals. You don't. You don't. You can't. You just. You know. You, you, we always seek out for a drink or whatever a party. People on we're on the same level as. And then, of course, among that within that community, we will follow this principle from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Somebody's not well. We'll stand in for them. Somebody needs the shopping done or whatever it is. We'll do it. It just makes you feel good to feel part of a community. And, and anyway, and he but he called this communism, and I thought that's. Who else talks about communism these days? I mean, we've got very funny little socialist sects, mostly pretty damn useless in my view, but I, I don't know, Socialist Workers' Party. Do they ever talk about communism? <laughs> they might in secret, you know, in a, you know, in a small little group somewhere, but they won't come out in the open and celebrate the, the, the idea of communism. David was doing that, and I just thought, this is, this is marvellous, this is brilliant. It was only a little bit later that I began to realise this, this is a very cuddly, this is a very, I don't know, easy to accept version of communism because he says communism has got nothing to do with property relationships because to each according to their ability to each according to their need is a is a is a, is a mode of relationship with others and of course as long as you're getting on with people you're a nice person you're friendly and so on you're a, you're a communist well you know when he brought his book out debt it was widely rumored and i think Accurately. I mean, actually, David himself told me this. He said, Chris, all kinds of senior bankers are reading my book. Oh, that's, that's nice. That's good. Um, <laughs> well, just think about it. I mean, a kind of communism which doesn't need any bankers to let go of their property, but all you've got to do is be a nice person getting on with people, being convivial, and, you know, on, a, on an interpersonal relationship level, that kind of communism is going to be kind of more acceptable, isn't it? More widely acceptable, more you know, more, I don't know, more, more likely to get picked up by the media. Oh, this is a nice form of communism. It's friendly. It's not brutal. It's not bitter. It's not divisive. It doesn't separate. You know, you can, you can, be, a, you can be a banker. You can be a corporate mogul and still be a communist because it's got nothing to do with property. So that's, 
no doubt at all in my mind one of the reasons why i'm not saying one of the reasons why david adopted that position but it's one of the reasons why a particular version of communism which is independent of property relationships might be more acceptable within the mainstream and more acceptable within the media than say my version of communism now, my version of communism is of course it means common ownership and it means that people who've got a lot of property need to need to be deprived of that <laughs> monopoly of their property without some kind of expro I'm, I'm, I'm not in favor of violence i'm in favor of doing it by persuasion but probably you'll need a bit of coercion uh, hopefully legitimate coercion because you might have you know you, you might have popular support and even i don't know whatever anyway so that's one reason the the fact that it's a very a very cuddly version of communism if you look at his um and i've only recently done this his 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 most important book in many ways lost people magic and the legacy of slavery in madagascar so i'm now if you let me I, if i've got time to, so now what happens with anthropologists is that you do your field work and your field work is like an initiation ritual. It decisively shapes all your thinking from that point on. Um, my colleague, Jerome Lewis, did this intensive fieldwork with his whole family, actually, in the first few years among these, if you like, communistic, egalitarian hunter-gatherers called the Benjeli. And every, every anthropologist, you'll just find that wherever they've done their fieldwork, because you can only do it once, you only live once, and you've got to learn the language and, I don't know, uh, you know, probably you need to do it before you've you've, you've got a family, and so many. Although actually, Jerome had his family while in the while in the forest, and, and his kids were there as well. So, where did David Graeber do his fieldwork in the late eighties, early nineties? He did it in Madagascar. Why did he call his book, which eventually got published in two thousand and seven, "Lost People"? Uh, and what does "lost people" mean? You know, all that. So it, it turns out as follows <laughs> that in the part of central Madagascar, a place, a little village really, or kind of quite large village actually called Petafo, where he did his field work, and this applies to most of Madagascar, there's a huge division between the indigenous people, and Madagascar was only, only populated by humans from about AD 800 or something. It's extraordinary. People never got from Africa. Uh, eastward to Madagascar. It was a paradise for the lemurs and other extraordinary creatures. You know, no humans arrived. But then humans did arrive. And where did they come from? Borneo, southern Borneo. And they arrived on Madagascar with uh, the music, the language, which they still got, of course, and, and, the, and a particular religion, which centered around ancestor worship and the building of very spectacular tombs. And what happens is that you, once uh, a year or so, every now and again, you your family need to put on a, at very great expense a ritual of re, of reopening the tomb. You go into the tomb, you find your mum, your dad, whoever, their body's now dried. You pick up their dried body and you shake it around and it all turns to dust. You, you smash the bones around, you know, all the bits of clothing and, and dried up flesh. <laughs> and you do this partly to sort of recognize your dead ancestors, but partly also to kind of anonymize them because the, the dust of all the ancestors all gets mixed up there. And what you don't want is an ancestor who's got a grudge against you wandering around causing mischief. So that's, so that's the ritual. But as I say, it's a very costly ritual. Now, Madagascar is divided into people who are Andriana. That means nobles. That means these are indigenous people who came originally from Borneo. And the other category is the what, what are called the blacks or the menti. 
And um, these are descendants of slaves. So you have either descendants of African slaves or you have descendants of people from Borneo. And the, the Borneo people who practice this ancestor worship all consider themselves nobles in one way or another because they're indigenous. They've always been there. They've got long histories of you know, descent. Whereas the, the, the blacks, of course, far from having a long history, they've all been uprooted from their culture, from the, wherever in Africa they were captured and, and, and brought across. And with extreme brutality, a young girl would be separated from her mother and, and put far away and, and who were separated from their, you know, from their from the kin, from their family, from their language, from the culture, and, and, and then sold. And you'd get sold as a slave, an ex, you know, you'd, you'd get sold to a household anywhere, really, in the island, massively dispersed. Now, those are the lost people. The, 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 the descendants of slaves are lost people in the sense they've been uprooted. And the, the nobles are lost because they've become lost in the last few decades, perhaps since in, during the 20th century in particular. Now, slavery was only abolished by the French in 1895. And now the whole topic of slavery is something which the nobles, the indigenous people, I mean, to put it mildly, they're reticent about. There's a kind of feeling of guilt about having been, you know, slaveholders. But more than that, the, the nobles, <laughs> coming from a position where they're pretty much used to do any work, I mean, it's, it's largely about rice growing, and the rice growing is in the valleys, in the moist valleys, where you can you know, have enough water. And the, the, the nobles would always live on the high ground and keep on the high ground. They didn't want to get their shoes muddy, and because that's, that's the job of the slaves. So they don't like doing, even to this day, <laughs> they don't like doing too much of this physical uh, hard work. So what happened was that when money began to become in, important in, in Madagascar, in, initially um, there was quite a lot of banditry, and, it, and the bandits tended to be from slave ancestry. So there's banditry. And then in addition to that, various kinds of um, trading in cash which again was sort of beneath the aristocrats. They, they were landowners, rather like, you know, I suppose aristocracies elsewhere, and you, you wouldn't demean yourselves with, <laughs> with petty trading. So what, what it meant was that over time, over 40, 50, 60 years, increasingly the weight of economic significance, the descendants of slaves, the black people, they're called blacks, whatever the color they are exactly, and the, and the others are called you know they're kind of called whites, even though we, they're not exactly white. They come from Borneo. Anyway, that's that's the sort of that's the, the stereotypic um, labels given. So what happened was that um, now there's a, a particular. I'll just give it through an, an example. A particular noble called Seli. He needed to, to to put on one of these famidihanas, one of these tomb opening rituals, which is actually very expensive. So he needed to borrow some money, and guess what? It was a it was an astrologer from a slave background who'd already accumulated quite a lot of money from doing astrology astrology means every time something goes wrong you know you you just charge for the you know you, you did the, whatever it is you did you did it the wrong phase of the moon you did it the wrong way or whatever <laughs> and uh, so he, he was quite wealthy and he was able to lend money to this aristocrat he lent it with collateral and the collateral was like 10 times the, the value of the you know the initial borrowing so this person this uh, aristocrat but then he couldn't pay it back. So, of course, he increasingly had, had to surrender his property. And so increasingly what's happened over the last 50 or more years, probably more like a century, is, there, is that the world has turned upside down. The nobles are lost people. 
because they are now having to do wage work for their former slaves or the families of their former slaves. And the former slaves are economically in the, in the ascendancy because they used to work and happy to do the work. And although originally they might have been dwelling in the bottom of a valley, so when they died, they'd just be traveling with any old person. Increasingly, they're now in a position to challenge the aristocrats with their, with their rituals. Now, why am I saying all this? Because, according to Graeber, everything's turned upside down in terms of Marxism, that the mode of subsistence, the mode of production, constrain the relations of production. Right. Where does it all end up? On Madagascar, the arrow of causality assumed by historical materialists, by a Marxist, the arrow of causality from the idea that the mode of subsistence governs or constrains the relationships of production, and that in turn shapes the ideology, that on Madagascar is now turned upside down because the narrative decides the property. And so what it is is that if you're a noble and you can come up with a convincing narrative about your nobility, about your ancestors, that will generate public confidence and you, and you won't have to default on whatever loans you've, you've taken out because there will be confidence that you can repay the loans. But supposing you make a mistake, supposing you mix the wrong ancestors in some ceremony, which seems to show that you don't know who your ancestors were, or suppose you, in your story about your ancestry, you say something which, isn't very, which is then challenged by somebody else, then you, you, you lose confidence. Your story doesn't add up. People lose confidence not just in your story but in who you are. And, that, and then that has an effect on confidence, including confidence in your financial viability. So <laughs> what happens is that everybody's fighting to produce a convincing narrative about their ancestry. And if you can get away with a convincing narrative by saying, for example, that you're, you're married into this family or that family or this person wasn't a bastard, this person was legitimate and all those things, <laughs> that in turn has an effect on your property relationships. Now, I get from... I get from David Graeber that he's taken that idea and carried it all over the place. That, in other words, that the narrative you tell is your choice, really, and your choice to tell a narrative then has an effect on your success in life, including your property relationships. And then linked to that is David's kind of egalitarian attitude to his fieldwork. He didn't want to come into Madagascar and become a guest of his of the people he was living with in this village and do science. Because he said, look, science means you're acting like a colonial administrator. You're just ticking boxes. You're looking for statistics, for regularities, you know, uh, levels of wealth in this population, that population, or whatever it is. He says, no, you're you're meeting real people and you want to listen to their stories. And each person's an, an, an individual and they've got their personal story. And then David says, and I've got my personal story and I would exchange my story with their story. And each person's, Utterly, utterly, utterly different from everyone. There's no such thing as a culture. There's no such thing as a stable cultural system. There's no such thing as a sort of moral, a set of moral rules. Everyone's breaking the rules all the time, especially because in Madagascar, since the French left, the, the, the state apparatus has become completely moribund. You know, you can, you can, everyone just w- works things out themselves. And they may, they may fill in the odd form or something when they purchase some property or somebody, but nobody, nobody's going to come down on them. But you know, from the central government to Unless it's been a very serious murder, the police will just, I don't know, just let sleeping dogs lie. There's nothing going on there. <laughs> so from that, David seems to me have been, have, have learned a kind of, I won't say 
hostility to science, but he thinks of science as a kind of colonial endeavor. Let's not do science. Let's just talk to people and let's listen to their stories and let's recognize that everybody's got a choice. Anybody can have this choice of, of story, that choice of story, and because everyone's starting off from the point of, view, point of view of being a sort of, he uses this term, lost people. Everyone's a kind of lost person who can make their own identity. Now, if you apply that to history as a whole, you end up with the idea there are no stages of historical evolution. You can't say there was a stage of primitive communism followed by a stage of whatever else it was, you know, feudalism, say, or capitalism. There's no directionality of history. Wherever you are, including in a city or in a farm, you know, you, you've got choices. And so it's a kind of a, a, an idea of freedom. And, you're just, and he says you're just as likely to have communism uh, if you're a farmer or a city dweller as, as, as if you're hunting and gathering. So, I mean, these, these ideas are lovely. They're interesting. It gives you a feeling, well, okay, I can be what I like. <laughs> but um, I don't know. They're just... I, I, it's just astonishingly um, divorced from reality. I mean, the idea that a farmer is going to be, uh, you're, you're a farmer and you're going to be just as likely to let everyone come onto your land and share the land as if you're a hunter and gatherer is, is, is just, uh, to say it's wrong is an understatement. Farming means fences. You need to, you know, grow the crops and you need to make sure that somebody else doesn't come in at the harvest time and steal everything. And the same with cattle ownership. You're not going to be, you know, you're going to be quite protective about your, your herd. You're going to brand your cattle. But he just ignores all of that stuff and says that every stage of society, people have got choices. And I can sort of see another, in a way, good political argument here. He says, if you say that only hunter-gatherers had communism, remembering that hunter-gatherers are very small communities, 50 at most, maybe 20 or so in a, in a camp, he says that means you're basically saying that in, living in a city, London, New York, wherever, Paris, you can't have communism because these are large-scale societies. And he says, actually, there's plenty of evidence that the earliest cities were just as egalitarian or communist as, as these allegedly simple utopian uh, hunter-gatherer bands. So he wants to sort of say, irrespective of the mode of production, irrespective of the property relationships, you can have communism. But, but even then, of course, he's, he, he, he tempers that by saying, well, you can have an element of communism because you're never going to get communism. You're never going to get society governed by just one principle. It's always going to be a mix of communism and, and other things, including the state. And that's, that is what he finds at Madagascar. There is a state, but people are constantly disputing the state and they're constantly finding enclaves of more, much more cooperative sort of egalitarian relationships in and against the state. Uh, the state isn't that relevant. You can, and, and, so the, and, and Graeber's politics is the same. He says, don't, don't think of overthrowing the state. Don't think of overthrowing capitalism. Find liberated zones, enclaves. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange idea to me. I, I met him once in around Occupy, and when I was probably starting the podcast, and I think I'd just read the debt book. I had been in Madagascar, actually, for about a month. Oh, right. When, yeah, when there was a revolution in Madagascar, like a, or a coup in Madagascar, actually, I arrived there on a plane, and... They searched the plane like for mercenaries. When like I was getting off the plane, like the the army were there, like checking us all out. I was probably too weedy to look like a mercenary. But I was in the country for about a month after there was a coup after happening, and I think it was about two thousand eight, maybe two thousand nine. But like 
this idea that these kind of liberated spaces in Madagascar would you could put forward as say a good thing for anarchism or communism it just struck me as absolutely crazy like of all the countries I've been to quite a good few countries in my time and of all the countries I've been to perhaps maybe bar Venezuela Venezuela was a very messed up place when I was there Madagascar was unbelievable like half the country was on fire when I was there literally there were burning forests everywhere the roads had like the roads between major cities would sometimes look like they hadn't been done in 20 years like literally you couldn't drive on the road it was easier to drive on the side of the road than on the road there was a complete breakdown of any kind of society it was definitely the poorest place i'd been to in africa you know i i just struck me as like a kind of mind bending that he would put forward like what seemed to me was like a collapse of society as a well you know, as a paragon for anarchism or something. No, to be fair, he doesn't say it's a paragon. He, he, no, yeah. He's perfectly well aware, and he says this, that if this is anarchism, it's a pretty dilapidated, <laughs> I don't know, sorry form of anarchism, and it's certainly not egalitarian. There's huge status rivalries. When he went, the village he went, he, he, he lived in, every, every family sort of was in conflict with every other family, and there was very little sense of real, like any kind of community stretching across the landscape. So he's not idealizing it really, but he's he's kind of saying, here as anywhere else, you will find wonderful people, wonderful friendship, but you'll also find liars, cheats, vagabonds, murderers. <laughs> you'll find all human life is there. But he sort of says, well, that's that's life. That's where everything is. And of course, I'm, I'm just thinking about that and listening to what you've just said. I mean. What about the United States? I mean, lost people. I don't know all these strange characters that end up voting for somebody called Donald Trump. I mean, uprooted, out of work, all their traditions sort of, I don't know, no longer meaning a lot. And then turning up, you know, the other day <laughs> on Capitol Hill with all their funny little banners and slogans, some of them Confederate and others, whatever they are, dressed up as cavemen and wolves and Neanderthals and stuff, all looking for a story. I mean, it's sort of, you know, lost people is not a bad, lost people captures something going on in the world at the moment, doesn't it? When I was talking to him, I kind of got the impression he was seeing like how positive the way that people in Madagascar kind of came together to do stuff when the state collapsed, that they did it on their own back. They would like self-organize and that he was very positive about that. Yeah, like, and I, I do find this idea of communism in the cracks and all that, I find it a very amenable theory to yeah. capital. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Like, it it seems quite reasonable to me that, like, somebody like Graeber with that kind of politics will be the type of person who would turn up on Newsnight or whatever and not <laughs> say, like, yourself, Chris. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they don't want me. There's no question about that because, uh, you know, obviously I've come up a completely different revolutionary Marxist Bolshevik um, tradition. I've, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about, by, by the way, I have to say, I've learned a lot from uh, all sorts of sources, including most of all cl- Reclaim the Streets, about the value of play and amusement and laughter. And I, and I learned from Reclaim the Streets uh, that it, really, if you're not having fun in your, in, I don't know, fun's too trivial a word, but if you're, if you're not sort of showing in what you're, in what you're doing, that it is an enjoyable, fulfilling way of life, so that in, in action, you're sort of prefiguring the future. 
uh, as opposed to sort of saying, well, yeah, we're all going to be nice people, but not not till we got socialism. <laughs> I learned from reclaiming the streets the importance of you know of conviviality, get, you know, getting a bit drunk now and again, and I don't know having a good time because otherwise you're not a very good you're not proving that your your way of life is actually you know worth living. It's going to be probably worse than what we started with, or could well be. That's an aspect of Graeber's politics which I actually I share. But uh, you know, but that doesn't you know that doesn't that doesn't mean you give up on the project of revolution, which of course a is more needed than ever before. Because I, I, to be honest, there won't be any life on Earth if we let capitalism just burn all the forests and just and destroy us. But b, I do actually think that the tide is turning. I think these fascists in India, Bolsonaro in in Brazil, Trump in America. I mean, Boris Johnson over here. They've had. I think they've they've had their go for whatever it is, twenty years, fifty years or so been a very unpleasant scary right-wing tide i think that's losing its shine and now we've got to go hell for leather for a global revolution based on science i, I the, the, in some ways the most i don't know damaging feature of graeber's um, politics is the way in which he just thinks that storytelling is enough that, you, that science isn't uh, isn't 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 relevant well, i mean i would just argue the opposite i would say and by that i just mean what everybody means by science i just mean this collectivist accountable internationalist pursuit of knowledge which is you know everybody's pulled down you have a theory somebody else pulls it down it's a difficult thing to survive with your theories including my theory of course but there is such a thing as science it, it, it's been far too um corporatized it's been far too fragmented it's been far too removed from the from the issues which really matter like what does it mean to be human but to me the politics which isn't rooted in science or with i mean for me the scientific community worldwide needs to find its voice, including its political voice. Kind of might be doing that now. You know, medical science, COVID, scientists are beginning to say to the politicians, you're idiots. You've got blood in your hands, you know. You, you know. And the same with the climate scientists. They're beginning to say, you need to do a few things if we want a livable planet for our kids. You know, we need to actually coercively legislate against, you know, criminality. You know, to forests uh, and, and seas and stuff. So for me, the voice of science needs to be heard. Science needs to be absolutely autonomous. No way should science be subordinate to politics of any kind. But the scientific community needs to develop its own politics, its own political voice. Just to kind of wrap up, I suppose, one thing I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, what confused me from talking about uh, Graeber's work was he seemed to always well, very regularly align himself in media when I would see him with kind of post-Keynesian uh, economists. So Steve Keen, Dr. Michael Hudson, these types who were maybe some kind of Marx inspired, but moreover were linked to a state form of money and to kind of Keynesian or post-Keynesian economics that always struck me as a very very strange combination between being an anarchist and being very linked up to this kind of a Keynesian idea of a demand managed capitalism when you when you talk about his ideas it it does seem to kind of cohere this idea that the state is always there so therefore we should just be left statist even as an anarchist I don't quite know how to respond there. He, I mean, the, all right. The basic, the basic point is that he doesn't, he doesn't think that expropriating the capitalist 
thinks is part of the program. He thinks that you, he seems to think that property relationships aren't the main thing. I mean, a, a very positive part of debt is his emphasis emphasis on violence. I think that's quite good. And, and although that's classic Marxism, because Engels described the state as armed bodies of men, a view which was, of course, taken up by Lenin and Trotsky, the state is armed bodies of men. You don't have a revolution unless you can some, find some, some way of provoking a mutiny or in some way disarming the, you know, the violence of the state. So Graeber has the idea that violence is crucial and, 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 and especially crucial to money. So he, he makes a very important point, which is that dependence on, on money, uh, on fiat money, on money where the coin or paper banknote is just worth immeasurably more than the material intrinsic value of the paper or the metal, that depends on violence. So outside the, outside the warlord or whoever this king or whoever it is, <laughs> his, 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 his remit stretches beyond the boundaries of his empire or kingdom, this money has got no, no, no value. And he makes the point that today um, what's happened is that the entire planet has become subject to this violence, Some, you know, maybe mostly Amer- British imperialism, American imperialism, the Chinese, of course, you know, weighing in now. And, and, and his point is really that should should this capacity to impose robbery and exploitation on the planet begin to waver, should American imperialism and maybe the other imperialisms sort of start to be ineffective in in pillaging and and rendering us all dependent on their you know their hallucinations called money, then the whole system will begin to collapse. So I mean that's an interesting point and maybe a point not sufficiently stressed by Marxists, this question of violence. And of course, what it then sort of leads to is the idea that as long as if you can begin to um, resist the violence of the state, if you can begin to form liberated zones, you can begin to occupy, you know, Wall Street or other places, you know, and then somehow prevent the state from wading in with its violence in whatever way, that in itself will kind of dissolve the monetary relationships and the property relationships. I can see I can see a kind of logic to that. But, of course, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, if, if you take debt, his, his solution to our problems, I, I, you know, obviously you have to sort of scramble around and I'm, you know, like anybody else, see, he, he, he's asked, oh, OK, David, what do we do? And he says, well, cancel the debt. And, of course, I mean, you're asking a state to cancel all its debts. You're asking American imperialism, Chinese, <laughs> cancel their debts. I mean, it's... It's a it's a very it's a feeble answer, an inadequate answer. David, you know, to be fair to me, he says that of course it's an inadequate answer. It's just I had to come up with something. So cancel the debt is it was a you know a bit of a catchphrase at that time, wasn't it? It was it was all around the place. All these bishops demanding that you know bankers cancel the debts. I mean I'm, I'm not against canceling the debts. I, you know I, I'm in favour of defaulting on the debts as well, of course. And, and I'm not saying David was against that, but you're right. But for me, the most the, the crucial thing is. The, the his loss of confidence. I mean, he, he's, I don't understand it as well. He, he seems to think that all these exciting developments all started in Seattle in um, November, uh, 1990, November the 30th, 1999, wasn't it? And I just think, David, does, were you just inactive before then? Didn't you realise all the build-up to, to Seattle? I mean, all the different events which happened with the Zapatistas, with the, with, the, with the Dockers dispute, which went global, that I was part of, and so many other things, that we were in a massive process in the, in the 90s, a massive worldwide movement building and building and building, which it kind of reached a kind of climax with Seattle, 
and, and some other major movements. I'm thinking of Bologna and, and Prague and, and others, of course. Um, but I don't know. It, uh, he seems to have got disappointed by Seattle. That For him, Seattle should have been the revolution, I think. And when it didn't happen, and he's written about this, he seems to think, OK, Seattle didn't work. We didn't have the revolution. More or less telling people like me, Chris, that was your revolution. It didn't work. Let's now try for something more modest. Um, and that's where I'm not sure <laughs> I want to go down that road. I mean, Seattle wasn't too ambitious. It wasn't, I mean, it was an extraordinary event. And I, I for me, absolutely, I, I happen to know that we did Seattle two years earlier, but, you know, because Seattle is a port and, of course, the Liverpool Dockers and their supporters in Seattle. We, we, we linked the environmentalists with the trade unionists in Seattle before the famous Seattle, you know, we had a whole, like a two weeks in in uh, in January, what was it, January 1997, I believe. Yes, we, we didn't win the revolution. That was a, a huge sort of uh, upheaval. It sort of reached the climax and then went backwards because I, I won't go into it, but for whatever reason, we didn't quite manage to seize the moment. And, and Al-Qaeda seized the moment instead with their Twin Towers attack. And then things went downhill, of course, after that. I, I just think that Graeber came into things rather late in life. He, he, he seems to have written very little about politics. He wrote about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and various other interesting topics before before writing about Seattle. And I've, I'm quite keen on Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a great, great... But, um, but he came in rather late to it all, maybe got overexcited, then got a bit disappointed, and then for the rest of his life, tragically short as it was, and I, I, I want to say overwhelmingly, whatever criticisms I've got, I mean, David's impact on anthropology has been nothing but positive. I mean, he's made, he put anthropology on the map. Everyone's interested now. He's just released all those treasures from the rich record of all kinds of, you know, fieldwork, what it means to be human, all the different ways there are a big human other than the narrow, you know, turbo capitalist path we're all being pushed down. But I think that um, he got disappointed and um, decided that, you know, being, being modest, as he puts it, was, was kind of um, the way to go, and ended up being very popular, but not so revolutionary. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. Thank you.